Hey, Retrospectors, for our third birthday, we've filmed an hour-long Q&A answering your questions. We discuss our favourite facts, how we make the show, and what we've learned along the way. If you're already supporting us on Patreon, thank you. You can watch it right now at patreon.com slash retrospectors. And if you're not a Patreon member, sign up. You don't have to pay a thing to become a free member and watch it now. So check it out. It's free. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's January 30th, 1661, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. The dictionary definition of an execution is a putting to death. But today in history in 1661, the most noteworthy execution of the year, ordered by the king, was of a man who'd already been dead for two and a half years and had passed away from kidney problems. Oliver Cromwell, whose corpse was dug up from his tomb in Westminster Abbey, dragged to a pub and then to the gallows at Tyburn, where he was ritually beheaded. Yeah, so Cromwell's body had lain undisturbed at Westminster until the restoration of the Stuart monarchy under Charles's son, King Charles II, in 1660. And after their trial, conviction and sentencing, 12 surviving regicides, i.e. those people who had participated in the trial and execution of Charles II's dad, were hanged, drawn and quartered. The recalled parliament ordered the posthumous execution of the deceased regicides among them Oliver Cromwell, and though he didn't (laughs) submit to that whole hanging, drawing and quartering, they did pretty much abuse what was left of him. But it could have been worse. This did happen to people who were alive. Um, (laughs) So so Cromwell was duly disinterred from the Henry VII Lady Chapel, which occupies the eastern end of the Abbey, along with bodies of John Bradshaw, who had presided over the court which condemned Charles I to death, and Henry Ireton, who was another signatory of the death warrant, and he was also Cromwell's son-in-law who was married to his daughter. Several other prominent parliamentarians, including Bradshaw's wife, were also disinterred from their privileged burial spots in the Abbey but they were spared the indignity of the public execution and merely reburied in a mass grave pit, which was what would happen to these three ultimately as well. It seems to have been quite tricky work to remove the bodies. You know, Cromwell had been buried in a grand state funeral. He was pretty deep in there. Cromwell and Ireton were removed on the 28th, but it took another day to retrieve Bradshaw's remains. So overnight, as you mentioned, those two disinterred bodies were held at the Old Red Lion in Hoburn, a pub which is still there. I've drunk there. Have you? Yeah, I mean, you know, not not knowing that I was uh, desecrating <laughs> the final resting place of <laughs> Oliver Cromwell before this indignity happened to him, but it's, an, yeah, I can recommend it. Three stars. <laughs> this date of the 30th of January was chosen in case you hadn't got the general vibes of Charles II essentially sending the message here, we're back, baby. Uh, <laughs> this date had been chosen because it was the 12th anniversary of the beheading of Charles I his dad. And so everyone in the general public, I mean, understood the significance of this. This wasn't just, you know, people in the know who were like, why are we doing this today? Cromwell's body was on display from the morning till four in the afternoon. Then it was cut down and the head severed. And people in the street were there cheering on 
which is remarkable because, you know, this is the man who was the Lord Protector of England who'd had a state funeral just two years earlier. The general feeling, as it's reported now, is that the public felt, oh, this decade of experimentation with republicanism was a terrible mistake and it was all Cromwell's fault. But I do wonder if really, A, it was actually Puritanism that had got them pissed off and they were just glad that was over, and B... The king has decreed this, so we all better get behind it now. Like, he's, he's proven that you literally can't, they will not die. <laughs> so you're not going to stand there and go, actually, we quite liked him, are you? You're going to keep your mouth shut. I mean, I do also understand the personal impulse of Charles II, who obviously was pretty grumpy with Cromwell for everything that he did to his own family. But also there was a good deal of regality that had to be undone because for someone who was very anti-monarchy, Cromwell ended up accepting quite a lot of the vestiges of what looked like everything up until being offered the title of king in 1657, which he did decline. But pretty much he ruled as if he was the king and he was buried as if he was the king. It's like a civil partner wasn't it? It was basically being king. Exactly. It was everything up to marriage to the country and governing it (laughs) (laughs) ruthlessly. Um, And so you would want to undo all of that symbolism. You know, he'd been buried like a king and you'd want to smash that to the ground to reestablish yourself. But he had been, of course, controversial in his own time and in literally every other time up to the present moment. But by 1661, Cromwell had been successfully retooled into basically history's greatest monster. So there was at least outwardly an appetite for a spectacle like the one that took place on this day. And I must say, it never bodes well if Wikipedia contains an entire article about your head. Um, (laughs) The saga of Cromwell's remains had actually begun long before this day because when his body, after his actual, natural, normal, relatively peaceful death, had been embalmed, delays to the grand funeral which was being planned for him meant that even though it had been embalmed, it nonetheless had started to decay. And so the corpse was actually quietly interred in the abbey two weeks before the state funeral, which ended up starting an empty coffin with a life-sized effigy of Cromwell on top of it. So there was actually quite a lot of weirdness around his corpse before it was disinterred and publicly, posthumously executed. Yeah, and what happened today in history to his head is it was shoved (laughs) on a 20-foot-tall wooden pole affixed with a metal spike, so far so normal for punitive justice, and placed at Westminster Hall, because that was the place of his crimes as perceived against... Charles I. What was unusual, because we've talked about this kind of ritual execution before, usually, you know, you get a week, a month. His head stayed there for 30 years. I mean, I guess (laughs) nobody wanted to be the guy who was like, Your Majesty, should we take this down now? It's kind of gross. (laughs) Yeah, it stayed there until 1684, um, which doesn't account for a brief moment where uh, it may have temporarily been removed for roof maintenance of Westminster Hall. Take it out for a drink to the old Red Lion. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine, like, I just find it so weird that, like, on one hand, it seems so alien to us that you would put your opponent's head on a spike in Westminster Hall, but also how normal it is that you'd have some guy come around to repair the roof. And he's like, (laughs) up there is it yeah there is a head on a spike up there are you going to be able to work around that no you should probably take it down until I'm and, do you know, and do you know where that goes well you know where it goes when you've taken it down and you've got to put it all back together again <laughs> don't mess this up <laughs> but there it stayed until a relatively pedestrian thing 
ultimately is thought to have brought it down, the great storm in 1685, which broke the pole that was bearing the head and threw it to the ground. And it's thought that one of the guards of the exchequer's office came across it and just hid it under his cloak, evidently thinking, you know, this will do me all right when I sell it on to somebody, and then hid it in the chimney of his house. London then went into, it was sort of like a disturbed ant's nest and suddenly everyone was searching for it and a considerable reward was offered for its safe return. But (laughs) this was the moment at which it slipped into private ownership. And then it re-emerged in the hands of a series of private collectors, some of whom exhibited it for money or tried to, and some of whom were simply willing to show it to any curious visitor. So in 1845, Thomas Carlyle scornfully noted, it has hair, flesh and beard. But the unique circumstances of Cromwell's death and his embalming and his execution made it pretty hard to definitively disprove because there wasn't really an example of what does it look like when someone's been embalmed and then buried for a couple of years, (laughs) then dug up and then posthumously decapitated. Like, what would that skull look like? There wasn't really anything to compare it to. Um, But actually, it did play into the fact that conspiracy theorists from the time of the execution had been speculating that these abused remains might not actually have been Cromwell. There was a theory that his body had been secretly buried elsewhere to avoid exactly this sort of thing in the event of a royal restoration, possibly in the yard of the Red Lion. Not historically documented idea that the bodies had been stored in the yard of the pub overnight, but there was then a theory that maybe they were buried there. Pepys actually recorded one version of this theory in his diary. He had heard that the corpse was actually that of a king because many royals had been buried in the chapel where Cromwell had been laid to rest. And Cromwell was supposedly known to have had some of them moved around. So Mm. there was this kind of popular, interesting idea that actually the body that was decapitated and exhibited on this day in history was one of a king. I mean, I guess the the dramatic irony was the thing that made that attractive. So there was long doubt that this skull that was being passed around all these private collectors was that of Cromwell. And yet some of the owners of Cromwell's head included Cromwell's own descendants, who certainly believed that it was him. And it did include a wart above his left eyebrow, which Cromwell had had. Um, In the 1930s, it was actually x-rayed and analysed scientifically. Obviously, now you'd be doing DNA tests and stuff. But still, by the 1930s, they had some methods that they could use to evidence this. And the conclusion, although obviously it can't be absolute, is that it must be Cromwell, because you can see where the head had been spiked. The embalming technology matched that of the 1600s as did the quality of the work kind of fit for a king. Like we say, he was, he was laid to rest like a king. And in the x-ray, you could see the bits that had sort of ended up in his skull as a result of what happened to it. Piccadilly Museum attempted to acquire it in 1813, but the Prime Minister had objected on the basis that it was distasteful to display a human relic in a place visited by people of all ages and sexes. So it, it stayed in private ownership into the 20th century until the head's last owner, Horace Wilkinson, who finally, 400 years on, realised this wasn't the most dignified thing to happen to the only non-royal head of state Britain has ever had, <laughs> decided <laughs> that the head should be buried. So asked Sydney Sussex College in Cambridge to give the head a proper burial, which it did in secret in 1960, only announcing the resting place in 1962. Less students dig it up and take it to the pub, presumably. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the red lion, Cromwell. (laughs) Tomorrow. She dictates annually two million words, enough to fill 27 books. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash retrospectors. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.